This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Jack Barsky. Jack is a former KGB spy who worked undercover in the United States for 10 years, from 1978 to 1988. During our conversation, Jack talks about his early life in East Germany, being selected for espionage by the Soviet government, his prior commitment to and belief in communism, his impression of the United States and its people upon entering the U.S., his objectives as a spy, his experience living in America, the flaws and dangers of utopianism, and the KGB experience of one of his contemporaries, Vladimir Putin. Jack is now a U.S. citizen, and his life story, detailed both in his memoir, Deep Undercover, and in the podcast, The Agent, is one of the most fascinating that I have come across. He has lived for decades in two parallel worlds, in Soviet and American civilization, and has important wisdom and reflections to share about his experience and each system's compatibility with human nature. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jack Barsky. Jack, it is so nice to meet you. I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Well, I'm glad to talk to you. <clears throat> Likewise. Um, I was rereading your book last night, and you start the book early in childhood with your first, as I understand it, your first memory, and it's the memory of the death of Stalin <laughs> yes. in 1953, which <clears throat> is the same year my parents were born. <clears throat> I know you were born a few years before then in 1949. I'd love for the listeners and the viewers to just get your memory of that time in your life, where you were, what what you remember about your early childhood and where you were in the world at that time. Uh, other memories of, I was just about four years old at the time. Other memories of that time are sparse. Uh, they uh, Some of them are because my mother would tell me some things, and then I remember. So that's secondary uh, memory. Yeah. Um, I I lived at the time in, in the on, on the third floor of a school building. My my parents were both teachers, and the third floor had had an apartment. Uh, so we, uh, you know, from a point of view of uh, living conditions, we we had it pretty good compared to particularly city dwellers who. Uh, who, who were hanging out together because a lot of the the living spaces were destroyed by, you know, by uh, bombs and so forth. Uh, and uh, downstairs there was there, there was a bit. I mean, the toilet was three flights down across the uh, across the the yard because like, we we used the, the school toilets, right? Mm. Uh, but other than that, you know, there was a nice playground. 
there was a big uh, backyard where the, the kids would run around during break. Uh, and so that was not a bad place. Um, the I have one direct memory, which is, uh, you know, beats me why, why that stuck. So I remember I, uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table eating uh, dessert uh, bl- blueberries, okay? And my father comes in and says, hey, you want to go for a ride? Uh, it so happened the neighbor was uh, uh, an, a, a craftsman and he had a truck. So we were invited to go for a ride in his truck. And I think the reason I remember this is because we ran over a dog and killed the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the Stalin uh, memory. Um, we were actually listening to this funeral on the radio. So there were my, my parents, uh, another uh, another teacher, and myself. And the reason I remember it so so well is because uh, I have a very high musical IQ. That doesn't mean I'm a musician, but I'm very receptive to music. And, uh, and it, it talks to me. And what I remember was the, the music that was playing with it was uh, Chopin's Funeral March. And and that and then when I think back uh, about that, this is a very somber piece of music. It's a funeral march, right? And and the the entire atmosphere was just went with that theme. Uh, there was commentary um, in, in Russian in the background, which was translated uh, into German. Hushed voices. There was deep, deep mourning across the eastern. Uh, European countries, because at that point to us, Stalin was, he was our secular God. Yeah. You know, he was the one, he was the one who single-handedly, never mind the allies, defeated Hitler. Uh, he was the one who, uh, whose, whose people sacrificed several million to defeat this evil Hitler person. Well, <laughs> much later, we found out that he was just as evil, if not more so. But so that's my first memory, which is like in, sort of um, sets the tone to uh, the the beginning, which started in kindergarten, uh, to the beginning of uh, communist indoctrination and me yeah. becoming a hardcore communist. I think this is uh, an important point that I, I'm glad you brought up that I think is important, especially for a Western audience to kind of underline, which is that, you know, as I read your story and learn about your life, you were a real believer. You know, the the ideology <laughs> of communism was something that not only were you raised with, but it seems like you were a brilliant guy. I know you were studying to become a, a chemist and, and were kind of on track mm-hmm. to become a professor yep. before life took you in another direction. But if you can talk about what you remember about what was great in your mind about communism, I think today we're going to talk a lot about ideas of the West and the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. What what about that ideology and that system, if you remember, resonated and, and made it stick and made you a, a real believer? Uh, <clears throat> lots of things. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, the country was absolutely safe for children to run around anywhere at any time we were free-range kids simply because of this is a dictatorship and uh, uh you know, it's a, it was a police state 
it was a Stasi state. It was a state that was run by, uh, you know, by, uh, a force from above. So um, the only uh, the only crime I remember that uh, I, I was aware of at the time was our butcher who <clears throat> uh, sold meat illegally on the black market and he, he went he went to jail for that that's the only there was not not a not a single friend of mine not a not a relative nobody that nobody ever had was aware of any crime being committed <clears throat> so we, we we were able to you know play outside in the dark and nobody cared so that was good <clears throat> there was also uh a a very positive attitude towards racial differences now i so in, for instance and the 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 uh, the publications for that were directed at uh, school children and then uh, you, you know uh, um, high school students and so forth <clears throat> when there was a picture of a young person they usually had all three black white and yellow yeah. Uh, now that was easy because we didn't know anybody else. We we didn't know anybody that we we that we that were other that were different that we might not like. Uh, the education that we got was phenomenal. Uh, early on, the the Communist Party uh, focused on educating the next generation of uh, of leaders by giving them not only uh you know the the ideological brainwashing so they would believe in the cause but also making giving them the tools to become experts in their field yep. uh after the the you know the east germany and west germany unified it was generally accepted across all of germany that the east german educational system was significantly superior than the uh the, the one in west germany one of the reasons being that we we had no choice. There were there were, were no electives, not a one. Mm. Everybody took the same thing. And uh, I have a, um, a a copy of the curriculum of uh, our senior year. Forty five percent of that uh, of what the time we spent in school was spent on math and the sciences. That's significantly more than what you get in the United States today. Yeah, you know, and you get to you get these electives where you can do needlework and uh, and auto car repair and stuff like that. Uh, no choice. This was hardcore academia. And when when we uh, uh, started college, uh, there were eighty of us that, and we were already a select elite of the high school graduates, right? Uh, because we had to we had to do an, a verbal in person entrance exam. Uh, 80 of us uh, and after the first year there were 60 left because we were uh you know treated mercilessly you know we we, we just uh, i spent uh, uh during during the week um let's say the the seven days a week i took a half day on saturday and a half day on sunday not working the rest of the time was i was either in class or doing work by myself from eight to ten p.m. Yeah, all right. So, and uh, 
there was no reason to complain because we we couldn't. Now, now, and based on this upbringing, we didn't know any alternative. We didn't didn't know any different difference. And you know, Germans are um, are highly disciplined. Uh, what I I've learned not to like is the militaristic type discipline where you just blindly follow orders, whether they make sense or not. Uh, but uh, you know, we we didn't we didn't question as to what we were taught, particularly with regard to communist ideology and why the East was so much better than the West. We just accepted it. Um, and uh, a couple of outsiders, one in, in high school and one in college, uh, who bucked the system were eliminated. In other words, their career was over before it even started. So we knew, you know, you just like, you know, you go with the flow and don't question what you're being told. There was no, you know, there was no, the, the culture in, 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 uh, in the uh, high school university was all, we tell you the truth, you learn it, you spit it back, and that makes you a good boy. There's no point counterpoint, never, Yeah. okay? So, um, and uh, with regard to accepting communism, as you know that, I'm sure you know that, it's uh, the, the whole idea of all the people living free and being, uh, being free from oppression and getting along uh, famously well. This is just so romantic. And, and if, if, if you, as, as a young person, if you don't buy into that, there may be something wrong with you. And I think, you know, the, the Churchill uh, quote, and I, I don't remember it directly, but if you're young and, and, uh, and, and you're, not, you, you, you're not leading with your heart or something like that, something is wrong with you. And if you're cold and, and you still haven't started, if you're old and haven't started thinking it, something is wrong with it as well. So um, there was, and, and there was, to us, there was actually proof that we were, morally superior to the West. And uh, th there were a couple of situations uh, where there was, you know, you know, when, when you sell the big lie, it sells much easier if it has elements of truth in it. Yeah. A and the elements of truth, and I'm going to stop talking after this, the elements of truth were such that in West Germany, uh, there were people in government who had been Nazis. So, uh, as a matter of fact, there was a chancellor by the name of Kurt Georg Kiesinger, a chancellor, the head of state, who had been a member of the Nazi party. But the really um, forcing point that the Communist Party, and that were really clever doing this, made was the following. Uh, in, uh, in our junior year in high school, and mind you, high school, uh, there were only about 10% of the students that were allowed into high school. The rest of them finished only 10, 10, uh, 10 years and uh, uh, learned a trade. So we're talking about the, the, the new leadership of the country. Uh, we were required to visit a concentration camp. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of what happened in concentration camps. You know, we, when we walked in there, there, there was this ex, ex, exhibition hall with big pictures uh, of piles and piles of corpses 
and all kinds of bad things that the Nazis had done to people. It was just, you, you wanted to cry. Said, How can people do something like this? This is so raw evil. Uh, it, it got even worse. There were a couple of shrunken heads. I mean, real shrunken heads on display and, uh, uh, and some lampshades made out of human skin because they uh, had tattoos on them, you know, and the, uh, the lampshades were made on behest of the wife of the commandant who, uh, uh, when, when new uh, prisoners came in, she would look at them and pick them out based on uh, the, the wonderful tattoos they might have had. So we come and uh, the other thing that was critical here that uh, the leader of the Communist Party by the name of Ernst Thälmann, he was the leader of the Communist Party until 1933. When Hitler took over, he was put in jail. And uh, uh, towards the end of the war, they moved him to that concentration camp, Buchenwald, and, and executed him there. So it is a historic truth that uh, before 1933, in the, in the late 20s and the early 30s, the communists were the only people, the only force that actually uh, had streets fight with the Nazis. They were very, very strongly opposed to Hitler. That doesn't mean that they were good. If they had come to power, they would have had their own, uh, you know, variety of evil. But anyway, that was known. So here, here it is. We have uh, Thälmann, uh who was executed by the Nazis. We were the heirs to Thälmann and his communism. And in the West, they had uh, who eventually became the head of the Bundesnachrichtendienst uh, by the name of Reinhard Galen, who had been uh, in charge of espionage on the Eastern Front. He was a general and under Hitler. So you got the juxtaposition of Galen, who was adopted, who uh, his, he and his organization was incorporated in, into uh, you know, the realm of the CIA and eventually became the, the head of uh, the espionage in West Germany and you had Tailman. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. Right? And so, um, and it took me several years of living in the United States to soften that radical communism uh, that, that I uh, came with. Yeah. And I want to get obviously to your time in in the U.S. and you know the years that you you spent here under undercover. But I think before we get there, it might be helpful for the listeners to you know have a general sense of how in the hell that happened in the first place. You know, um, my understanding too about your life you you didn't have family members who were spies. This wasn't something that was related to. Oh nepotism. no, no, my 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 grandparents uh my one grandfather was a janitor the other one was a forest ranger who uh, uh prior to the end of the war took uh, care of uh of a, uh, the estate of a count his wife cooked for the count uh so there was nothing there my, my parents uh were pretty bright so after the end of the war the the east east germany got rid of all the all the teachers that had 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 Nazi connections, and there were a lot of them, obviously. Oh, yeah. So they, they, uh, you know, they they took uh, participated in a crash course and became teachers. So that's my background growing up. You know, I was I was the son of a of a a, a, a couple that were teachers, where the father eventually became the uh, 
the principal of the middle school that I had attended, not not a good place to be as you know, the, <laughs> because, you know, you, you just were, were a standout. Oh, you, you said, a lehrer kid, a, 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 a child of a, a teacher, I was the only one. Anyway, uh, I was, okay, so starting in high school, and then in college, uh, uh, I, th there was some material available about the heroes of Eastern espionage. Uh, uh, one of them was uh, a, a German by the name of Richard Sorge, who spied for Stalin in Japan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was eventually caught uh, and, and executed, and Stalin denied that they ever had a relationship. And Stalin, by the way, also ignored uh, a lot of the intelligence that he was able to to send over to to Moscow. Uh, and there were some other stories of typically these were stories of 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 spies that were caught, and in some cases then either exchanged or actually managed to uh, escape from prison, stuff like that. Uh, and there there was a bit of a, a heroic heroic literature about uh, the the heroes of the. Uh, East German uh, intelligence that operated in the West, chasing after Nazis and so forth. There was this very, uh, very, very well-made TV series that uh, was called the uh, the Invisible Visor, uh, with uh, Armin Müller Stahl, who is still alive and was the only East German uh, uh, actor who actually made it in Hollywood. He was uh, he was the hero, and and we just ate that up, uh, but. I did not connect the dots between me and that. And never, never even an inkling of a thought, hey, it would be great to do that. No, uh -uh, no, I was going to become a professor. And, and that was that. And as I read your story, you were selected, you were targeted, you were oh, someone yeah. who was identified by the powers that be as somebody who might be a good candidate for doing espionage. Yes. And, and I, you know, I obviously after, um, my my quote unquote career as a spy was completely over. That means once I uh, I had a relationship with the FBI, uh, I was able to do quite a bit of research, and I took piece. I, I put the pieces together. So this is very likely what happened. First of all, uh, and and that's documented uh, via a couple of interviews. The KGB uh, was always looking for candidates who could operate as illegals. And they had a list of character traits that uh, was about a dozen or so uh, traits that were necessary for somebody to do that kind of a job. Uh, obviously, uh, qu quick thinking, high intellect, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Also, uh, fearlessness. Uh, <laughs> my, my favorite is... is is a uh, uh, well-controlled inclination for adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and, and anyway, uh, when I look at those uh, character traits, I fit them to a T. Uh, and so the next thing, the way they did the search in in, in East Germany, the uh, secret police Stasi had records on everybody. Okay, so what you do, you just go through the records and look for you know, candidates. 
Now, I was a standout. I think when they found me, I had received uh, a scholarship, a national scholarship that was limited to 100 concurrent holders in the country. 100, no more. So if you wanted to add a new one, the old one had to have been retired. Uh, so and there was you, in, in order to receive that scholarship, you had to have excellent grades, which I did. I aced the whole damn thing. Uh, and you had to be a party member and active in the communist youth movement and had some additional interesting things that you're doing in your life. And I, I played on the university basketball team. So, you know, if I'm a recruiter and I see that, that you're starting out with that scholarship, I see that and I, I said, wait, wait, this, I want to talk to this guy, right? And so that's what they did. Uh, they sent uh, a, um, a collaborator, a German. And so when, when he uh, uh, made contact with me, I thought he was Stasi. Yeah. Uh, he, he was the most incapable agent type I met in my entire career. I mean, he was fundamentally an idiot who didn't know what he was doing. You and, know, he, and Jack, if you could describe what Stasi is for people that yeah, may Stasi, he's German that. secret police. Uh, it's sort of the uh, the um, this, the mirror image, but much smaller of the KGB. So it was it was uh, everything: FBI, CIA, and NSA, whatever you want. It had everything. It had espionage. It has uh, it had a supervision of the entire country. Uh, making sure that everybody's in line, uh, and uh, and uh, also a technical uh, division, which, by the way, was eventually towards the end was was headed by my best friend in Germany, with whom I studied chemistry together. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a good it's a it's a good uh, chance that I traveled with forged German passports, West German passports, that his organization made. Because they were so good, they they sold the, those passports to the KGB. Hmm. Um, you yeah, know, just let let me talk, and I I wander off a lot because <laughs> there's so much that happened in my life. But anyway, this guy. Uh, so first of all, uh, this was on a Saturday. I'm sitting in my dorm room, uh, and I was doing some some work on whatever. I studied something. And there's a knock on the door. Now, mind you, there were no nameplates on the door. And there were almost, it was rarely ever that we had visits from strangers. Now, how did that guy know that I was behind that door? Well, again, I put, put two and two together. There was a, uh, next door, there was a, uh, a, a group of four people, one of whom uh, was an, a Russian exchange student. He was most likely, you know, KGB, or at least, you know, working with the KGB and, and, and he befriended me. So he already started, he started uh, looking at, you know, who's this guy, you know? Uh, and so he must have given the information that A, uh, on Saturday, I would be alone in my room and B, this, you know, this is how you find him. Yeah. So I let the guy in and uh, he introduced himself as the, this is, this was the stupidity of the whole thing. He introduced himself as a, uh, a representative uh, of the optics uh, factory called uh, Carl Zeiss Jena. That was the, uh, and still is, uh, one of the, the uh, uh, foremost uh, manufacturer of, of high, high quality optics. So, and he, his, uh, he wanted to talk to me about my plans after I finish 
my, my, uh, my, my, after I get my degree. And, and that was pretty stupid because in those days, and he should have known that, uh, co uh, companies did not recruit. You were assigned after you were done with your studies. You were assigned, you go here, you go there, you go there. Uh, it, with the exception of the top 10% who had the option of sticking around and, you know, working towards their masters and not actually to, uh, towards their doctorate. And that would, would have, would have been my option anyway. So, uh, that, that, that cover immediately said to me, well, the, the, the guy's, the guy's Stasi, I thought, you know, and, and it didn't bother me at all because I had no reason to be concerned about Stasi. I thought, you know, that might be interesting. So I kept on talking with him and eventually he changed his tune and he said, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm really not, uh, uh, uh from Carl Zeiss Jena. I'm from the government. Uh, you, you know, I could have asked him, so what part of the government, but I, I, I let him off the hook. Yeah. So, so and, and, and the, so I waited a little bit and he said, uh, ask me, could you imagine envision one day to work for the government? And I, uh, answered the question that he didn't ask. I said, sure, but not as a chemist. So, you know, we, we had an understanding that we, we, we both knew where this was going. So, uh, we, we, we made a, arrangements to meet for lunch, uh, the next week at which he introduced me to somebody at the table. There were two of them sitting there and this were his last words of a, a man who, who never introduced himself by name. He said, um, and I'd like to introduce Herman to you. We are working with our Soviet comrades and then he disappeared. So that's how I got to the KGB. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, I've heard you say this as well, that, you know, there was extensive training once you were accepted and, and once it was decided by, <clears throat> by you and the powers that be, that this was something you were really going to pursue. You did spend years, as I understand it, yeah. working on your English, getting trained in the Soviet union, but there was also yes. great <clears throat> incompetence. Yes that the incompetence and the, the lack of cultural understanding, right? I mean, your goal oh. was to be planted in the U.S. as a spy for the Soviet Union. And right. as I understand you tell that story, as you have in the past, there was great incompetence about the lack of cultural understanding from the people who were training you about what it was like, what it, what it would be like for you to actually live in the U.S., what do you remember about if, if I had, <clears throat> yeah, the, the time, I, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, finish up the, the training that you had to do in the Soviet union. Right. And, and maybe if you could talk specifically about what the actual goal was, my understanding is that they were hoping that you would get influence with, I believe it was Brzezinski that eventually you would be able to climb up the ranks in the Soviet <laughs> Union to have influence over him. But you can speak about what, what the real objective was in planting you undercover in the U.S. in general. Well, the Brzezinski is, uh, is a bit of an urban legend. I happened to mention uh, Zbigniew's uh, name uh, during my 60 Minutes interview, and people then sort of uh, didn't – they took it out of context. So uh, – Fundamentally, you're right. Uh, I was supposed to get close to 
uh, people who are uh, important in foreign policy or at least are influencing foreign policy. And they gave me uh, uh, three organizations that would be of interest. One of them was the, uh, I, I don't know exactly if it's uh, named like that today, but it's the Institute of Foreign Policy at uh, Columbia University that was headed by Brzezinski at the time. So that's how that name came up. Yeah. The, 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 another, the, the next one is a conservative think tank. It's called the Hudson Institute. That's still in existence. And the third one, they were like obsessed with the Trilateral Commission. I still don't know what the Trilateral Commission is today, uh, <laughs> but 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 that was that was the uh, that was what they thought I I should be doing. Interestingly enough, now that I know, uh, I have some feedback from from FBI who work counterintelligence. Uh, to the extent they know, I was the only illegal who had tasks to perform. All the others were just here. Their task was to live here. And be and establish themselves just in case, you know, diplomatic uh, relations were uh, completely severed, and uh, uh, the illegals would be the only ones behind enemy territory. Somewhat uh, a, a bit of a romantic notion, but uh, this is what this is what the KGB had in mind. But anyway, uh, so uh, and uh, with regard to training, oh my God, I, I'm. From from uh, well, never mind. Let me let me just uh, m make sure I get this right. The 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 technical training, you know, what we call a trade craft, spy craft, you know, the tools of the trade was superb. Mm -hmm. The technicians were excellent. Uh, surveillance detection. This this that, that guy who who uh, uh, taught me was that. I mean, they were the best. Um, everything else, and and I had I had a a tutor tutor in Moscow who was a, a, a born American with whom I met twice a week. Well, that helped a lot. But with regard to uh, uh, getting rid of uh, as much of an accent, a German accent I had, uh, <clears throat> that was a lot of work that I did by myself. So I had a tape where they, it said, where you do phonetics exercises. So they there's a word that's being spoken, you listen, you repeat, spoken, listen, repeat. I did this for at least a year and a half, a half hour every night. You know, I when when I take something, I, I'm in it a, a thousand percent. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the the flagrant lack of preparation as to what it's like to be an American, I I didn't know until I got to the United States, and I immediately realized that I had to make my entry into society very carefully because the tool, the, the, what, what I've, uh, what I had been given was incomplete at best and false at worst. Mm. Um, I give you one example. So in those days you could get tapes, right? And in those days, the, the, the beta and VHS technology was already available. So the only tape that they gave me to watch was of a movie uh, that was made maybe in the 40s with stage English. You know, that Hollywood, uh, sure. slightly exaggerated English. <laughs> uh, 
totally useless. If if I uh, had been able to advise them, I would have said, tape some some uh, uh, geez, uh, <laughs> you know, um, all my children, uh, General Hospital, what are they called? Soap operas. Um, soap operas, exactly. Sometimes my brain just get, gets into <laughs> neutral. Uh, soap, soap operas, because A, it's it's day to day talk. B, there's there's very little distracting music in the background. That's what they should have given me. Lots of it. Nothing. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and they, the, the problem with these folks was the, the following as uh, the, 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 the folks that spent time as diplomats in the United States were the elite. These were like the most coveted jobs, right? And they got them. So, you know, they come back and, you know, they had a lot of Western clothes, you know, and, and, and uh, they, they had a certain swagger because saying, we're the best, you know, and everybody envied them, right? Uh, actually, my, my liaison, who was a really, really nice guy, uh, and uh, uh, a very bright guy, he spoke some German with, with a heavy accent. He said, you know, I really envy you. I wish I could learn, learn English the way you do. You know, I want, I want to go to the U.S. too. Uh, so, and with that ignorance and uh, with with that arrogance came a lot of ignorance. They thought they knew everything when they knew nothing. And you you got to understand their their existence in and I give you only New York because I'm familiar with the New York setup. They had a, a compound in in the northern part of Manhattan that, by the way, is still in existence and still occupied by Russians, uh, where they lived. Some of them with their families. Uh, they worked either in the Soviet mission or in the United Nations, where they had colleagues who were Russians as well. And uh, in, in the United Nations, they had colleagues from all over the world. They really were not in any way, shape or form integrated in some way in American society. So they were looking at US society from the outside. They had dead contacts with Americans, and so because you know they they had to, that was part of what they were supposed to do. But they had no clue what it's like to live and work in the United States. So and and they were not aware of it, and that's the worst part. Because if they had been aware of it, they uh, uh, they would have found a way to give me uh, more material more good stuff on my way that I that I had to find out all by myself trial and error. And I, I muddled through I, I didn't feel that I had succeeded becoming a born because I came with a birth certificate of a born American, uh, Jack Barsky, a born American until my first job as a professional uh, at MetLife as a programmer. At that point, uh, I had been in the US already for five years. Yeah. And uh, that success, which was all my doing, uh, is, is proof that they recruited the right guy. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they, they probably were very well aware that uh, um, there, no amount of training could prepare you for this kind of life. Okay, I'm going to stop right here. So, uh, 
<laughs> I think in, in hearing your story, you know, you ticked off some of the characteristics that that the KGB was, you know, intentionally looking for in their recruits. And I think you hit on some of them that undoubtedly are true, you know, intelligence, uh, aptitude for adventure. It also seems that a propensity and a skill for... May, improv- I, add, may I add one more? May I add one more? Sure. I'm sorry, may I add one more? That that just came to mind, which is really important. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, easy adaptability to uh, changing situations. And I had a lot of changing situations. And I, I got no problem. I, I, if, if, if necessary, if, if there was a good reason to uh, pack my bags and move to Ireland tomorrow or Australia, I would have, wouldn't have a problem doing that. Yeah. And the j- just to clarify the objectives, right? Like, what did you know before you were actually planted in the U.S.? What did you know you were tasked to achieve? And how long did you know you would likely be in the U.S. for? <clears throat> Okay, uh, first part of the question, it, it was rather fuzzy. For instance, the one thing I was not told was that the most important aspect of my being here was my being here. Yeah. Nobody ever told me that. Okay, so, and, and we did talk about uh, uh, collecting information about foreign policy. That's starting, uh, starting with uh, the reaction of Americans to... Uh, you know, big events in, in the world. I give you one example. For instance, the, when uh, when the uh, uh, Soviets shot down the Korean airliner, the civilian airliner. You know, and, and I would, you know, I would interact. But at that time, I was in college, and I would interact with a lot of people and collect information that was probably more valuable than what the diplomat agents uh, sent uh, to Moscow, Moscow, because I guarantee you they. Just took the New York Times and the Washington Post and copied some stuff from there. Hmm. Okay, uh, that was number one. Number two, uh, get to know as many people as possible uh, and, and and just scan them as to whether they would be uh, a target for recruitment. We call this dysfunction spotter. Uh, the way recruitment works generally, uh, at least in the KGB, it says one who finds the candidate, that's a spotter. Then there's the, the one who recruits, it's the recruiter. And the third one is the handler, the one who runs the agent. And the three don't know uh, about one another. They don't know what happened to the individual that they're working with. And so I never knew, I never knew one at all whether they uh, acted on some of the folks that I suggested for recruitment. Primarily, they were uh, either colleagues uh, in information technology uh, or or, uh, uh, college students. So that was task number two. Task number three was like really odd. And I didn't know, uh, I I didn't have context. Uh, uh, At the time, when when I was in training, uh, the, the Cold War was uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Yeah, the Cold War uh, became rather warm, if not heated, and uh, and the, the the Soviet leadership was pretty much convinced that Ronald Reagan would start a nuclear war, and so I was told <clears throat> to uh, <clears throat> periodically visit. Uh, a uh, a military installation. Uh, uh, it's um, um, it's a it's a it's a big harbor 
uh, in near Red Bank uh, in uh, in New Jersey, uh, Earl Naval Weapons Station Earl, code named Early, and I was supposed to just stop by uh, occasionally and see if there if, if there are indications that uh, there are preparations for war. Uh, to prepare me for that, I had a a, a relatively short course where uh, I was taught how to identify the types of ship based on the silhouette when you look at it from a distance. Uh, I found out much later that uh, all agents that operated in the West had this kind of a task. It was called Operation Ryan. Now, I don't know what the what the acronym stands for, but this was uh, the paranoia uh, by uh, um, Andropov, who had become... Uh, I don't know if he was the head of state already, but he was the, the head of the KGB when I, I joined, uh, he, because he was the one who, who was behind this. Uh, and and that was it. That, that's what I knew I was supposed to do. Uh, while I was here, I had two special tasks that required, uh, oh, no, actually three, that required the ability to move out of the uh, restricted the, the zone which uh, which uh, the diplomats, the Soviet diplomats, were not allowed to get out of without permission. Uh, I had uh, once they had had me look for uh, an an ex KGB agent who was under a death sentence and lived and taught in California. I didn't know. I found him. I didn't know that he who he was until much later. Uh, he died uh, from natural causes, thank God. And the other one was interesting in that <clears throat> you put the pieces together. They asked me to find a, a spot way north uh, in uh, in New Hampshire, uh, a spot where uh, for a dead drop operation where a, a large container could be placed and, and, and retrieved. Uh, that was the time when uh, Aldrich Ames, who was a mole in the CIA, was uh, was doing a lot of damage to the United States. He 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 has all had a lot of material that he sent over uh, in these these types of operation, but that was dangerous for him. Okay, because uh, you know the 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 Soviet the Soviets were known to be agents, the diplomats, and they were being followed. So. Uh, the I, I this was interesting. They, that was the only time that I was asked in Moscow whether I would be uh, uh, willing to take on a task that would be a little more dangerous than everything else I was doing, and I said yes. So I did find the spot, and and the reason for this what was now this is to put a, a, a somebody neutral in between Ames and the KGB. Me, I wasn't being followed. No, nobody knew about me. So, uh, but they never followed through. You know, I, I found a spot, I described it, whatever. So, but these were the, the things that you, that you could give somebody like me, who, who was free to travel and free to like interact with practically everybody. Uh, and uh, so they took advantage of, 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 of my being there. And that way, again, I was the only one who was tasked that way. The, the, the other illegals that were known or are known to the FBI just lived here. And before you got here, you know, as you already alluded to earlier in this conversation, you were a, you were a believer. You were a communist believer. What was your perception of the U.S. 
it's people, it's culture. What was in general your take on the country at that time? Okay, uh, so the first uh, few years I just lived in the country and I had no idea what it's like to live and work in the country, right? I mean, I did work the first two and a half years I was a bike messenger. Well, that's that that doesn't make you an integral part of society. You know, you uh, you go to work, you you deliver your packages, uh, you collect your weekly paycheck that was good enough to uh, actually rent an apartment. So you uh, uh, go back to your apartment on the weekends. You usually do espionage type activities. You know, check for you know places where you could uh, uh, you know deposit a container that has information that kind of stuff it's called dead drop operations uh, which is handing over uh, not directly handing over material but indirectly so I'm gonna put it here and you know where it is and you know when it's there and so forth uh, and that's that's what I did on the weekend and then I spent uh, quite some time believe it or not I didn't have a television set for two years uh, I spent time learning Spanish uh, just because I could, no, just because I had fallen in love with a <clears throat> with a woman who had once visited New York and uh, uh, had indicated she would uh, move to the United States within two years. All right, that's uh, the romantic in me. Uh, so, so, so I, there was no integration in society uh, at that point, and same. T- so, so you know, I was well aware that. There was better food, there were better clothes and all of this, but, uh, you know, that I was prepared for that. You know, I rationalized all of this because the United States was an evil imperialistic power that robbed uh, the third world blind, you know, stole the bananas from Guatemala and, uh, you know, the riches uh, from everywhere else. I, again, at that point, I had no reason to to check into the truth or lack thereof of, of this statement of this claim. I was just busy doing what I was doing. And, uh, and then I spent three years uh, in college. And that was, <laughs> and it probably is very similar, you know, City University in those days were like, was like the United Nations. Uh, probably half, half the students were uh, not born in the United States. So the doubts started flaring up when I had my first job because now I was in a company that was supposed to be one of the evil companies. So we were taught the banks, the insurance companies and the companies that are uh, part of the military industrial complex were the most evil capitalist uh, enterprises. So I'm, I'm starting my job at, you know, at the MetLife as a programmer and uh, within about a month, I get to do the programming. Man, and I love this. I just, this this was so much fun. For the first time, I could like use my my very active mind to create something, right? And 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 I loved it. It was logic and and but what what created the doubt in me? The company was very good to us. We had free lunch. And if you wanted to, you could have free dinner and free breakfast too. Uh, the, the, the pay was pretty darn good. And my bosses were incredibly appreciative of what I was able to do. They were very nice. So now I'm thinking, so where's all the evil people? Hmm. You, you know, and, and it, it met life oh, within a year or two felt like I'm back home. 
uh, because it was like the way I was brought up. I was a I was a privileged child of a communist regime, and uh, I I knew if I did a good job, they would take care of me until the end of my my days. And the paternalistic or maternalistic uh, uh, type uh, company that insurance uh, companies were in those days promised you the same thing. Yeah. You start here, you get a job for life, and then you retire with a nice pension and a gold watch, and uh, we'll take care of you. <laughs> so I said, wait a minute, something does not compute. And um, without knowing it, I wandered from uh, communism to sort of socialism or very similar to the way actually uh, Western Europe operated when when uh, socialist parties were in power, uh, sort of a welfare state, right? And <laughs> interestingly enough, and unbeknownst to me at the time, the the socialist parties of uh, uh, of Europe had developed uh, a theory called convergence theory. That means that communism and capitalism would converge as one and become like sort of this welfare state. Uh, uh, t type of entity. <laughs> and even more interestingly, on my last visit to, to Moscow, which was in 1986, my uh, the liaison that I had at the time, uh, you know, he, he uh, gathered me from the airport, we get into one of those limos, KGB limos, and he volunteers that he uh, that that he is uh, he, he's a believer in the convergence theory. Now, this guy was not an independent thinker. So that theory must have taken hold, at least in parts of the KGB. And when you look at, uh, you know, what Gorbachev uh, spouted uh, in, uh, once he was firmly entrenched, it got pretty close to that. Uh, so so the, the communist system was softening. And there were two ways to do to to go, you know, staying hardline and falling apart, or or trying to sort of get to a point where it's becoming a nicer, better place to live with some freedom and and a lot of uh, you know welfare from the top. Well, you know what happened? Communism exploded and fell apart. Yeah, you know, as somebody who was born in lived in East Germany and then trained in the Soviet Union and lived in the, you know, within the Iron Curtain for, for your entire upbringing. How did Americans in general strike you once you came to the U.S.? Very nice. And mind you, <laughs> that, that was in the Northeast. My God, if I had started out <laughs> in the South, <clears throat> very nice, uh, very friendly, uh, somewhat naive, uh sort of in new york you had a an, an an upper crust of intellectuals and the elite uh that i could best relate to but i really couldn't mingle with a lot because of my low standing in society the rest of americans uh struck me as naive not very well educated certainly not uh, not having any idea what what's going on in the world outside of the United States, uh, very much internally focused. Well, 
yeah, why not? I mean, you know, this is a, it's a large country, <clears throat> and uh, and and there's no reason to. There was no immediate reason to to learn about the rest of the world, uh, but but it, generally, <clears throat> I, I was uh, very pleased with with the interaction that I had with Americans. And I, you know, when I then was at MetLife, I I made uh, quite a few friends. <laughs> Interestingly, only one of them was a born American. The other one is was a born Cuban, uh, a Sicilian. And a, and a Chinese fellow. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I know in your life that the more that you spend here, it, it's, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but my understanding about your own belief system is that the longer you were in the U.S., the more you were taken with the, you know, primary ideas of the Constitution and the basis of the foundation of the, the liberties of the of the United States. If that is well, correct, what, that, how did how did that unfold in your own thinking? No, that that came not while I was active. That came later. Mm. Um, it, it, as you know, my decision to quit the KGB was had personal motives. Yes, because I didn't, I couldn't leave my one and a half year old daughter who. Uh, who is uh, today is 35 years old, and I'm very proud of who, who she became. And uh, and if I hadn't stayed back, she would have had a much much harder life for sure. That's not, no doubt in my mind. So I, uh, I in that respect, I did a good job. But, but you see what happens. Uh, this is 1988 when I quit. At that point, as I said, it was personal motives. Uh, I uh, I was certainly not a communist anymore. I. I had, you know, you you could have um, maybe if uh, if you want to relate to uh, some folks today, I would have been sort of the part of the radical wing of the Democrat Party. Okay, mm-hmm. so left wing Democrat. Yeah. Uh, that's where I was. I mean, so uh, but I had residual loyalty in eighty eight. The world was not up yet. In 88, the Soviet Union still existed, and I was under the impression that we were still making progress with regard to uh, uh, spreading goodness in the world. So I was loyal. I did not want to betray either the Soviet Union or specifically my country. And so when when the war came down in in 89, you know, I watched it on television, it was a huge surprise to me. I had no clue. But, you know, neither neither did the CIA. Nobody saw that coming. Mm. Uh, and then the Soviet Union uh, collapsed uh, uh, a couple of years later. And at that point, uh, I had withdrawn into private life. I hadn't, so, you know, the eventually uh, I became known to the FBI because there was a, a defector that, that had information about my existence. And so I started working with the FBI. Uh, this was, I knew this, I, I was going to live my life out as an American, but I wasn't yet uh, really, um, you know, I was an American. I was very grateful to the opportunity to live the American dream. It started when I bought my first house and then I bought another house and another house. At this point, I still, you know, I followed politics and I watched it and uh, and I had my own opinions. And over time, 
I came became more and more conservative thinking, uh, freedom thinking, because you know uh, even even growing up in in East Germany under in a communist dictatorship, I really didn't like being told by uh, the authorities what to do, where to go, and and because of my standing in society, I had relative freedom, but I didn't like being told. So I've always been an individualist. But here here's what what happened. Uh, so I became. Uh, First of all, uh, 9-11 happened. That's when I emotionally became an American. We, we all were patriots for a while, and then some of us forgot. Uh, and then uh, eventually I got my citizenship, and it felt really good to have a home again. So I'm emotionally uh, an American. I'm intellectually an American, but I didn't have a deep understanding of of the Constitution. That happened literally two years ago when I took a, uh, an online course uh, from Hillsdale College, uh, like 10 part series on the American Constitution. And I said, Oh, my God, this is so brilliant. So now I'm intellectually 100. Now I'm 100% American. This is <laughs> this is how it, it, it worked. You know, people may have this romantic notion that I I came and I saw and I got converted. No, no, no. And it's a good thing that it was gradual because uh, uh, the, the folks in East Germany who were my friends and the folks I studied with, folks who were prominent in society, when the wall came down, they got it felt like they got hit with a, over the head with a two by four. And they still today have not digested the fact that they served the wrong cause. There's, there's a lot of rationalization going on. If we only had had better leaders, that kind of thing, we had the, we had the right ideas, or, you know, we were just victimized. So my, my, my gradual becoming who I am today as a citizen of the United States, I think was the only way to do it the right way and, and successfully. Hmm. I mean, I think you are one of the few people in the world that has a, a deep understanding of, you know, truly the differences between Western culture and communist culture, Soviet culture, East German culture. <clears throat> you know, it, yeah. To give them the benefit instinctive, of the doubt. Instinctive as well as, uh, you know, instinctive as well as logical, intellectual. Yes, sir. How do you, you know, to give that system the benefit of the doubt? And we've already talked about you know, the ideas of socialism to some degree. What are the what are the pros of that system? And in your mind, you know, I, I don't think either of us would regard the American system as perfect. Mm. But in your in your assessment of of the two, why is it specifically that the Soviet system is deeply flawed and inevitably, you know, leads to failure versus the American system that you now inhabit? <clears throat> well, it, it's deeply flawed economically, but also from a human point of view. Uh, I believe very strongly that free people who can determine their own destiny are much better motivated than people who are in a structure where ideology is supposed to motivate you. Uh, the the, uh, the team uh, the collective is what is more important than the individual. That is against human nature. Uh, I'm friends with a 
with a, uh, a retired behavioral specialist from the FBI. And so he studied human behavior and he will tell you that people always do what's best for them, which includes what's best for the ones that, that, they, that they love. And so that selfishness is a good thing mm. because it makes you do things that, uh, that otherwise it takes initiative initiative. I, uh, uh, we, we, in, in high school, we also, uh, spent time learning a, a job. So we spent every fourth week, we spent time in a, uh, in, in some factory and we were, we witnessed the laziness of the workers. Yeah. They had, they took, they took every opportunity to not work because they were paid no matter what. Okay. So that's from an economics point of view, that is a huge weakness. But the other thing is it's, it's just the, the atmosphere. If, if you, if you can pursue your dreams, if you can pursue, uh, using your talents rather than being assigned to do something that you don't want to do, uh, if you put the collective above the individual, eventually he's, this is what happens. The collective, as um, and that's the that's the law of a of a collective system. The collective starts small, and then you have the individuals that, at a, at a lower level. But there is this big collective, which is the centralized state, that invariably uh, it appears, and um, somebody has to lead that right it, it, it's it's a hierarchy a hierarchy can only be managed from the top and um so there is this elite and, and communism it was the party but within the party then there was the politburo and so forth and even even if the leadership starts out with the best of intentions this kind of a construct is so vulnerable to becoming evil all it takes is somebody like vladimir putin to change Russia from something that uh, romantically started out uh, going uh, going in the in a Western direction and, and was never able to do it. And just to finish the thought, uh, if people think that uh, all we have to do is get rid of Putin and, and Russia will be okay, that's a false hope. Uh, the Russian nation is severely contaminated with the ideology of uh, that Putin has been uh, produced uh, for the last 20 plus years. Yeah. I'm glad you brought him up because I know, you know, to some degree there was some overlap in both of your careers that he, he was a KGB agent as well. And, you know, my understanding of your take on him in general, and I don't, again, don't want to put words in your mouth was that he was actually a mediocre KGB agent, that he was not one of the elite. And I'd love for you to give some context there as to why you believe that and what your assessment is of him as a man and as a leader. Okay. Um, Vladimir Putin went to KGB school. I didn't, I was, I was trained one-on-one because I was super secret. Uh, the rest of them all had classroom training Yeah, and there was a group of them, right? <clears throat> He, he was pretty good uh, acquiring the German language. And after maybe a year or two uh, serving uh, 
sometime in, in Moscow in the first directorate, the same uh, organization I was part of without knowing it. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and he was then deployed to intend East Germany. East, East Germany was a vassal state. It was a friendly state. You think you deploy your best agent to a friendly state? You should deploy him to West Germany or maybe Austria or maybe even Switzerland. Um, and, uh, I have, I have some knowledge as to what these guys were doing because I was working with one of those guys uh, for a year and a half. Uh, so they probably did some recruiting and my, my, uh, my liaison there, uh, worked with me and he trained me to some extent and he studied me and then eventually came up with a report that he sent to headquarters in Berlin, uh, to decide as to, you know, whether to actually truly recruit me up, up until that point, I, I was not KGB. I was just like working with a KGB. So, so, and, and of course there had to, had to be a liaison function with a Stasi. And, you know, there may have been some courier trips into the West, but you don't put your best agents to work in that kind of environment. What Vladimir Putin was good at, and that became uh, quite uh, uh, apparent early on, he was a good organizer. Yeah. And when he went back to uh, St. Petersburg, uh, and also to, to the extent he could, he he networked really well with other KGB folks. So he amassed an, a sort of uh, an a, 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 a amount of human capital which helped him then to uh, to rise in, in the ranks. Uh, he uh, resigned from the KGB and uh, somehow, I don't know, uh, connected with the, the mayor of St. Petersburg by the name of Subchak and did a good job for him and networked some more. And uh, when, here's the thing, when the, when Russia, uh, uh, the Russian econ economy was denationalized, when, when it was privatized, uh, it was done in a way that uh, gave birth to oligarchs because this is what they did. And uh, by the way, American consultants uh, uh, had a great part in, uh, in engineering this and they didn't have a clue what they messed up there. So every citizen of Russia got a certain am amount of shares. It, that means they now everybody co-owned a small, owned a small piece of, of the, of the economy. Most of them didn't know what to do with that. Then they had no clue what that meant mm -hmm. because, you know, they, they, they had no grounding, no education in, in how capitalism functions. Guess who was very familiar with that was a lot of KGB agents. And that's how oligarch work be, uh, became. They bought up the shares pennies on the dollar. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Vladimir now was associated with some uh, some people in the KGB that rose in the ranks of, of politics and the, 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 the economic, the, the rulers of the economy. And uh, somebody, you know, suggested for him to, you know, uh, help Yeltsin, who was president of Russia at that time, to, to clean up the mess because Russia under Yeltsin was a humongous uh, mess that uh, it, it was uh, 
it was in decay and was fundamentally not well governed at all. So he became prime minister, uh, and uh, and and he did his job cleaning up the mess, and eventually became the president. And that's how Vladimir became who he is today. Now, his uh, his motivation. He 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 actually wrote about the um, event when. East Germany, when, when the wall came down and the, the East German population uh, became rather rebellious and were storming uh, Stasi offices and also went after them if they were known KGB offices. And so uh, he, he recalls what happened. Uh, one day there was a, a demonstration that were, were trying to get into the KGB office, but they were rebuffed by armed guards that were shooting bullets in the air. And then the crowd came back. And somebody in that office called Berlin and asked him, can we defend ourselves? And Berlin said, we have uh, strict, uh, strict uh, rules from Moscow, no violence. So here's Vladimir Putin, who was a proud member of the most powerful what he that's what he knew most powerful organization on the planet uh watching helplessly how regular unarmed citizens were uh taking documents and stealing documents from the kgb office that left a mark in him he says not again never again uh if, if i can i want to restore russia to greatness and he was quite open as when when he was already president he was quite open saying that to the world nobody paid attention that's that's to the detriment this is this is where american and nato uh uh failed miserably we didn't pay attention you know who is he you know what does he have well uh he's got nuclear weapons and he's got a lot of natural resources and uh over time he i think he became so enamored with this whole idea and he became so enamored with himself that he now, I think he has a messianic attitude towards his life. He wants to be the next iteration of Peter the Great. That's, that's what's driving the man. Uh, you know, it's not, not, not helping the Russian people, but it's now about his own greatness. And uh, he truly believes himself. If you, if you saw that, uh, that uh, clip that uh, came from the BBC, how he was, how he was mishandling his, uh, his uh, chief of the SVR intelligence service and, and treated him like a fourth grader that, that tells you something, what it's like to be under Vladimir Putin. And that also tells you that uh, the truth might not necessarily get to him because people are afraid of telling him the truth or, and that uh, he will just ignore the truth because it doesn't fit into his uh, preconceived notion. Yeah, I know we're getting short on time. And I want to thank you for, for doing this and sharing so much of your, your story with, with the listeners. I, I wanted to close with asking you about, you know, your big takeaway from your own life, you know, that you've lived in such <laughs> different and important systems, really the two primary systems of the 20th century. And, I, you know, to me, the ideas of the Soviet Union are going to be very difficult to die. I don't expect them to to die. And I think there will always be people who, 
are interested in yeah. resurrecting that system. Yeah. Yeah. As you think back on, on your life, and this is a big question, but in general, what are your big takeaways from your experience living in those two different, those two different systems, you know, for the next generation that is being raised right now is getting exposed to the big ideas of the world and they yeah. haven't lived through the cold war. They haven't right. lived in both systems. What would you say to them? What, what is an important, what are the important takeaways for posterity to take away from the experiences and the lessons of your own life? So, some of the questions that, <clears throat> that you have asked today require me to do some thinking on the spot. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm proud to say that I can still do it. <laughs> uh, first of all, Jesus, please pay attention to history. Uh, in the United States, history is not being taught anymore, is it? Really, real history. Uh, we're talking about, you know, from at least middle school on uh, into college, uh, because you know the saying, history repeats itself, and it does, and it does. But unfortunately, with regard to uh, the emergence of evil, it gets to a higher and higher level of danger of eventually destroying the earth, period, because we have the means, you know, uh, the evil force in, uh, in, 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 Roman, in Roman times had to fight with their hands. And then the fight came with bullets, and now we have nuclear weapons and so forth. But the other one, and that's the one I just came up with, beware of the arrogant dreamers. Hmm. So this is what we have today. Uh, is uh, we have people who and and uh, I would I would give them the benefit of the doubt that they they're not they don't necessarily want to rule for their own benefit, but they know better that if if uh, they build a society according to their dreams, which is a collective collectivist type of society, everybody will be better off. They believe in it, and eventually, you know, they they may once they. They um, they get a sense of power. They might actually tip over into into being bad. But it starts out with arrogant dreamers. I know better than you, and I will help you live a good life because I'm just that good and and knowledgeable. And you know what? I was like that myself. Yeah. Yeah. If we could sneak in one final question, tease that out a little bit. The arrogant dreamers, do you mean the utopians? Do you mean the people who just think that life can be improved? How do you how do you think about that specifically in terms of what to oh, yeah. watch out oh, for? Oh yeah, and, and when you're talking about utopians and and uh, and people who do not understand there's a seed of evil in every human being. And Evil has gotten worse. I mean, in terms of, you know, when you look again, look at history, uh, you know, the, in the 20th century, uh, man killed more of his own species than in, in, in the entire history up until that point. So don't tell me that man is fundamentally good. Yes, we have, most of us are really good, but it sometimes that doesn't take that much to, to turn. And some of us are born pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And, and getting back to the uh, construct called the American Constitution, that is the only construct that I am aware of, that can uh, manage evil, not 
not eliminate it, but manage it, keep it at bay. Uh, that's maybe a, a good way to end this conversation. And we should be grateful for that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jack. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.